You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Maya Ackerman, PhD. Maya is a world-renowned researcher in generative AI and CEO co-founder of Wave AI. A pioneer in the space, Ackerman has been researching generative AI models for text, music, and art since 2014. Dr. Ackerman was an early advocate for human-centered generative AI, bringing awareness to the power of AI to profoundly elevate human creativity. On this week's episode, we talk about what is generative artificial intelligence, how are ChatGPT and OpenAI changing the world, is ChatGPT the Google search killer like everyone is saying in the news, and what are the next steps for this technology? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Maya, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we did an interview years back, and well, there's a picture from that interview that I'm going to say made me a professional photographer. And today, to this day, I'm still, I think I'm the most proud of that picture taken. And actually, I don't think I was the one that took it because it, yeah, I was the one that took it. I'm the most proud of that picture than I think of any other picture I've taken. So for our audience at home, you're going to have to go on Google and archives, check and all that to find it. But with that, Maya. <laughs> Great to be here, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Just to catch everyone up over the last couple of years and to give our audience a little bit of information on your background. Can you tell us a little bit about your yourself, your career up until this point? Oh, of course. So I started off my career in computer science, got my three degrees at the University of Waterloo, focusing my PhD on theoretical foundations of cluster analysis. And during my PhD in parallel, I took vocal lessons from a local opera singer and learned how to sing opera. Absolutely fell in love with it so hard. And within a year, began to perform semi-professionally. And I was really surprised how much the music part of my life became really important to me. And I wanted to write my own songs, which proved to be notoriously difficult. I could write something, but it was just, it was awful. So I tried for a few more years. In parallel, of course, did my postdocs at Caltech and UC San Diego. And then in 2014, got a faculty position at Florida State University originally in computer science. And I discovered a field called computational creativity, which is really just generative AI applied to creative applications. And that's really what began my journey into making creative systems and in particular for music, which is where I struggled. So we made systems that would help me write songs and over time opened up a company which now helps millions of people with the same kind of struggles that I was facing. So we're going to dive into that company in a little bit, but Before that, there's so much there that you mentioned that I'd like to unpack a little bit more. Let's just go in kind of maybe the history of generative AI. I mean, I think that's pretty much the biggest buzz right now in Silicon Valley. I might be wrong, but that's my guess. But what is the history of it? What is it? What's it capable of? What's basically give us, you know, 10 years of information and we'll package it in a little bit. Go for it. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. So, you know, it feels like generative AI dropped on us out of nowhere. just like... One day, some brilliant companies made up generative AI. That's not what happened. The idea is about machines doing creative things and helping us be creative date back to the 1950s. By the 1980s, we had already amazing systems within academia. There is, for example, Harold Cohen's Erin, which is a painting system, 
which he designed to paint in his own unique style. And already its artworks have been showcased in galleries. David Cope from UC Santa Cruz had a system called AMI Experiments in Musical Intelligence that created incredible music in the style of Bach and Vivaldi. And he already was getting pushback uh, and admiration for these systems all the way back in the 80s. And then sort of in addition to these really kind of unique pioneering individuals, there came about an entire academic community called Computational Creativity, which I was lucky to discover around 2014, who have been building many, many different systems for so many different applications and really taking a profound approach to it. They were asking questions like, what does it mean for a machine to be creative? How can it help us be creative? And building these systems in parallel to developing this entire theory, there is so much that the world can learn right now from this group of researchers. And I, would, I mean, I would love to see their work become better known. And then by the time that you look at companies like Google or IBM or, you know, eventually OpenAI and other companies kind of wanted to enter this space and build massive models, there was already a lot of research showing how to make machines that create things. The real innovation, which I do think is very meaningful that came out of, for example, OpenAI, was to put a lot more money into it and as a result, create a much bigger machine brain than existed before. So as we know, with animals, the size of the brain, the number of neurons and connections really does impact intelligence and ability. It, it's sort of a fact. And if you're able, for enough money, I mean, millions and millions of dollars to build these models, originally we we're looking at about 15 millions per model, which academics generally cannot afford, OpenAI was able to create the same sort of idea of a creative machine brain, but just way bigger than ever before. And as a result, you see emerge from this behaviors that are sort of very, very interesting. So then the reason we just haven't heard about this up until now, is just there wasn't anyone funding it. Is that? Oh, no, it's not. The reason we didn't. Well, <laughs> this is such a good question. This is such a good question. So there were interesting creative machines in academia for decades, and we didn't hear about them because there wasn't enough PR around them. And so if you look at the last 10 years, what did he people hear about? They didn't hear as much about the systems in academia. They heard about IBM Watson. They heard about Google Magenta, right? They heard about Tay, which was a massive embarrassment for Microsoft, which is actually, in my opinion, connected to why they opened OpenAI, but that's a separate question. So all these companies are able to put a lot of marketing dollars behind publicizing these models that they built. Meanwhile, in academia, we had a lot more systems that came a lot earlier. But as we all know, you build something in your garage, you don't tell anybody, nobody's going to know. I am curious about the Microsoft thing in Thai. I, <laughs> I hadn't heard anything about that, but I'm also kind of curious. So we're, it's just got PR marketing behind it now? That's really the biggest difference. Yes. It's, uh, you know, we, we kind of live in this world where we think if somebody comes up with something amazing enough, everybody's just going to find out. But if any of the listeners have ever tried to start a company, the quality of the product, the quality of what you're making, it's just a piece of the formula. How you distribute it is, is just so, so key. And academia is not designed to disseminate everything. It's not, it's not really built very well to publicize. There are exceptions. But for the most part, you could have an entire, entire research community doing something for decades that's just incredible and have nobody find out. That's the way our world is set up. It's very money-centric. And when you have money to put behind something, you can make the world aware of it. Well, then I guess... Why now? Why the PR behind OpenAI? Because at least for myself and our listeners, I would think that OpenAI is really the first experience with generative AI. Okay, not mine, but for, 
because <laughs> and we'll talk about your company more later. But but hold on, I I think the first experience for many is right now OpenAI when someone sends them a link and goes, "Hey, type in a question. Hey, it could write an email for you, or hey, it could give you a line of code and for WordPress press plugin or whatever." Why put the PR behind it now? Why this? Why? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a very particular perspective as to what happened here. So, okay, if you look back at what happened with Microsoft with their chatbot Tay, they released it back in 2016 and it lasted, I believe, for 16 hours online because it was born, it was made using reinforcement learning, meaning that it would learn from communicating with people on Twitter and but Twitter Very, is good. Twitter, Twitter is, good. is solid, you know, solid, clean, you know, really. Uh, <laughs> okay. So as a result, it learned how to be very racist very fast. In fact, it became a Holocaust denier in no time. Well, it's 16 is, hours, actually, there was a time. There was so much time. I mean, I'm, I'm a granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, right? So it kind of hits home for me. Anyways, they learned their lesson. This was not a good thing for Microsoft. And so... <laughs> Instead of continuing to experiment in this generative world by themselves, they, in my opinion, actually created OpenAI to sort of be a different brand. They worked on, first of all, they're the majority investor in there. They, they basically own OpenAI. They did such a good job associating OpenAI with Elon Musk. Uh, like a lot of people believe that it's like he's just so strongly connected to this, to this company. Some people even think it's his company. There was a lot of PR early on kind of focusing on him and OpenAI. Right now, Microsoft is more open about uh, even incorporating, I mean, ChatGPT into, into all of its products. Microsoft basically owns OpenAI, but yet when we see ChatGPT, when we see Dali, we don't think Microsoft. So they did this beautiful job separating their brand from this experimental technology, right? On purpose, because of the embarrassments that they've had in the past. At the same time, you have Google, who has way better access to data. I mean, they basically index the entire internet. They know which web pages are good and which are not. And yet, because they don't have a separate entity to take on the risk, essentially, they can't openly release these models. Of course, Google has these models. Of course, it does. And of course, the models are amazing. But they can't compete. They can't openly compete in this space yet because they didn't do this clever trick that Microsoft did. But could they, with all their access to data, possibly? Because at least maybe this is a separate group, but the PR I'm seeing, Google search killer. Google is aware of what a threat this kind of technology is to them. There is no doubt that they have their own version of ChatGPT, which may as well be better because they have better access to data. Machine learning is all about data. But they can't release it and have it spew out nonsense. When you ask ChatGPT things that are not really well known, it makes up things. It literally makes up complete nonsense. It makes up preferences. If you ask it for an article and then ask for references to it, it will make up fake URLs, right? It hallucinates to, to such an extreme degree. I think ChatGPT, by the way, is amazing. My point is that Google can't afford to take on the risk of having its system spew out complete nonsense on a lot of different queries, right? So they need to they need to make these AIs at a certain threshold level that OpenAI, as an apparently new company, secretly Microsoft, just doesn't have to meet that threshold. Question with that, what data is needed to create one of these generative AI systems? That's such a good question. So OpenAI trains on about 10% of the internet, possibly more now. So just these massive, massive amounts of data. And 
Google has so much more than that indexed carefully and so much data about it. So Google could train and they have so much money to invest in it as well. So I have essentially no doubt that they already created data that includes sort of even a bigger proportion of the internet and trained even better because they have more information about those web pages. But they, it's actually um, kind of a difficult situation if you think about it. Like, what do you do? This ChatGPT is coming on really quickly. You can't risk your brand because you need to be at a certain quality level. But I, I believe in Google. I think they'll figure something out. Okay. But what about a third party? Is there any space in this, this world for a startup to go in and compete? Oh my goodness, of course. Of course. It's just, oh, I don't know how they managed to do this. They didn't only manage to take credit for the entire field of research. They also made it seem like they're the own and be all. I mean, the PR accomplishment is insane. How much, it's almost like politics, you know, in politics, the PR can, and media can convince us of anything. And I feel like this is sort of another example of that. So when you look at the previous wave of machine learning, right? Predictive AI. Of course, one company can't own all of predictive AI. It's absurd. You can, there are just so many use cases, so many places where you can predict things. How can possibly one machine be used to predict everything? It doesn't make any sense. Same thing with creation. Creation is such a varied idea. And there are so many ways in which ChatGPT is limited. I love it. By the way, I should really pause here and say why I think it's such an amazing system. When it comes to helping you write, helping write in different styles, helping edit. It's, it's a miracle. And as far as like getting information, that's really common knowledge. I call it the greatest common denominator of human knowledge. If you can find something on the internet, hundreds and hundreds of articles about the same thing on the internet, ChatGPT knows it, which is pretty cool. And it's going to be accurate about kind of simple information. It can still be off sometimes, but it's, it, it's accurate a lot of the time. But it's also what's called convergent, meaning that it has some idea of truth and it tries to get you to it. So, for example, if you ask it about write an article about how to write songs, and you ask it a hundred times, it's going to give you pretty similar stuff on the same prompt. So it's convergent. It's, it's trying to get us to, to its idea of what the truth is. Meanwhile, generative AI in academia was traditionally used to explore creative space of possibilities rather than get to the truth. So, like what I do, for example, in my company with Wave AI, is I come up with different ideas for lyrics, come up with different ideas for melodies show me the possibilities and then, and then I'll make the decisions. And in this kind of context, the AI can be incredibly creative rather than attempting to be correct. So it's a very, very different use case. And from a broader perspective, the whole direction of convergent versus divergent can lead to many, many different systems in many different verticals. Kind of curious then, would generative AI that's convergent be considered maybe the dumb AI and then the divergent, the smart AI? Well, it depends what you're looking for because... Something that's divergent is not necessarily going to be right in any meaningful sense, right? It's not designed to be correct. It's designed to help us explore different options. Whereas a system that's convergent has a chance of actually being right. So somebody can try to use it to replace search down the line, right? Because it, it has this capacity of giving us correct information. It's like you don't get a paintbrush and a canvas to take a photograph, right? Like it's, there's, it's like a different use case. It's a different beast. I kind of want to ask, where do you see this evolve into next? But I'm also kind of curious about what were the steps taken to get to where we are now? Yeah. So what's happened so far is academics did a lot of work over decades. The big companies came in. They took the models, took the research, poured money into it to make the models orders of magnitude bigger than ever before. They're positioning themselves as sort of the gatekeepers to generative AI, which is hilarious. And they kind of making it look like 
most companies need to rely on their technology. But then look what happened to Jasper as a result. Jasper was relying on the GPT models for marketing. By the way, love Jasper. I think what they're doing is phenomenal. But then ChatGPT came about and at the very least, it does no worse than Jasper. So Jasper had their code base on top of the GPT models and then ChatGPT came out and ChatGPT by itself without any layers on top of it is phenomenal in marketing. Just phenomenal. So if you rely on one of the big players, the big player itself can overtake you. It's a bit of a dangerous business model. I think, I think there are going to be a lot of successful companies that use the big models, but they're also at risk because the models can become better at whatever it is that their specific company is doing if they center their company around someone else's tech in this way. As I said, I do think there are going to be a lot of successes that operate in this way as well, but there is also risk. You can also, just like in any other field, just like with predictive machine learning, build your own models for the specific application that you need and not be limited by what the big players happen to be interested in, not be limited by these large models. So what we do at Wave AI, we have a lyric model specifically for lyrics, which is much cheaper to train because we focus specifically on this one use case. And so we're able to be the best in the world and completely independent of the large players because we build our own models from, from scratch for a very, very specific use case to serve the users. In any other industry, we think, okay, what problem am I solving for the user and how do I solve it? And if you can build your own machine learning, your own generative AI, then you can actually solve that problem in the best way without having to work around very large, expensive models. Another example is our Melody Studio. This is actually years ago where I started my research in generative AI. So you take lyrics and it creates melodies for you. It finds different ways to sing, to sing the lyrics. There is nothing like that. The big models are not targeting this use case. And so if you're not thinking about your work in terms of what the big models are able to do, you can solve anything where generation can be helpful. I am kind of curious on if these models are being built on data that they're scraping or taking from the internet that, I mean, so, so say I create a website, I put all this content in there, I own that content, but then some search engine comes, scrapes all that, uses that, combines it to their, as the data set to train their algorithm to then push out this other content. Who kind of owns that content? Yeah. So um, what's happening right now with the big players is pretty extreme. Where I find it most extreme is actually around imitating specific artists. So it's one thing to learn from data and then for what's called transformative use to create something brand new. And one can argue that humans do this all the time, right? We read books, then we write something, we listen to songs, we try to write our own song. but we can't, like, you, you can't go out there, study Picasso art, and then make your own paintings and sign them as Picasso. You can't do that. There are limits to what humans can do with our learning capacities. Right now, I can go on Midjourney or, you know, Stable Diffusion or Dali and explicitly try to imitate the style of a living artist, a living artist who's trying to make a living right now. And what happened to some artists is their works actually got buried in generated versions of their style, really, really hurting their bottom line. And that's insane. That's insane. The technology does not have to be used like this. I feel like, I feel like there are just so many magical, amazing possibilities that get opened up with generative AI and with how it can help us be creative. 
But there should be some boundaries around it that protect, at the very least, people who are trying to make a living today. Has, have they come up with any solutions for the artist to, to kind of get out from underneath this pile of... Well, there are lawsuits happening right now. So I think a lot of the decisions are going to happen now. And I feel like it's kind of, I'm hearing a little bit of an all or nothing argument right now. I'm kind of like, don't use any data. It is... It's this kind of extreme that never happened with supervised learning, right? Like we had predictive machine learning for so long and there was sort of a certain understanding on how you can and can't use data for it. But because it wasn't stepping on anybody's job in, in a way that's quite as blatant as right now, people weren't thinking about it the same way. So I feel like right now there is sort of this thread of people who are just terrified of AI and kind of just want it to go away. And where I'm hoping it lands is on some kind of reasonable solutions that simultaneously allow the technology to evolve because it is here to stay. We're not going to get rid of it. <laughs> uh, but also has some, you know, minimal ethical considerations to protect people, at least minimal, hopefully more. With that, with people, I mean, some of the areas that I really want to take this conversation, I'm really curious. One, are there the engineers out there that the companies are demanding to build this or is there a lack of it? What type of education or training do current engineers need if they want to pivot into this field? Let's go that direction. I got a bunch of others for you. <laughs> okay, how do you get into this? Well, it's very funny because it, even though it existed for so long, it appeared to emerge out of nowhere. So there's like a rush of people who want to get into it right now without maybe pausing to appreciate how much depth there is here, how complicated this is. We're introducing entities into this world that are highly creative in a way that's different from ourselves. This needs to be done really thoughtfully. There is you know, a small number of academic institutions that have researchers who have been studying this for decades. I think that there is room to start academic programs in generative AI and really put together the best of our knowledge in machine learning, the research that we've done for decades on how to build these models with a really human approach as well, with sort of consideration to HCI, how are humans going to, to interact with this? And critically, ethics. What are we actually trying to build? Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. I mean, we know this. Do I need to mention the atom bomb, right? Like, it's obviously just because we can doesn't mean that we should. So generative AI, like anything else, has positive and negative possibilities, depending on how we use it. And the people who are studying it right now and who are out there in business, we're going to be shaping how this really powerful technology impacts the world. Then another question around I mean, Silicon Valley, there's these waves of right now, art. AR, VR is hot, then blockchain's hot. Right now, generative AI is hot. But even before that, AI was hot. Where does generative AI fit in the whole artificial intelligence kind of package there? I mean, how many different areas, different branches are there? Because I think everyone's heard artificial intelligence and thought that was everything. But now we're hearing about these different subsectors, I almost want to say. Yeah, I find it really fascinating how the word AI is used in business. Because I spent my career researching AI before predictive AI, before sort of these big machine learning models. I'm talking about like the stuff that powers Amazon and Netflix recommendation engines, not generative AI. People kind of for a while thought that that was AI, right? Like what Amazon has powering it, what Spotify has powering it, that's AI, that's what it can do. But we had AI before that, and we're going to have AI after generative AI, right? This idea of machines being intelligent is incredibly broad. Uh, it used to be limited to expert systems. People used to believe that to create an intelligent machine, I have to teach it to think like me. You know, I'm like, okay, how do I make decisions? Maybe I kind of make them like a decision tree. Think if that, then this, you know, kind of branch out different possibilities. And so for a while, especially around like the early 
decades in AI, that was considered to be AI, expert systems. And then gradually we had more computation power and we started building these brains that make predictions, they make decisions. And that became, okay, okay, this is AI, this is it, right? And generative AI was developing in parallel to that. And it was already amazing for decades, by the way. But finally, (laughs) there's enough PR around it that people are finding out about it. And now people are aware of that. And then we're going to have something else. AI is going to keep going forward and coming up with more ways to build on our intelligence and in the process discovering actually new kinds of intelligences that we don't even have that sort of end up complementing us. Like we can't predict as well as these big predictive models and we can't create in the same way as the generative models, right? So it's, they kind of become partners to us in our world. And over time, we start taking them for granted. It becomes absolutely normal. Say years, years from now, when one thing that people are talking about now in Silicon Valley, high frequency computing or, or the next wave of, of computers, how will that impact artificial intelligence? Well, with AI, the more power we have, generally speaking, the better are the machines that we can build. So I definitely expect that as computation power gets even more powerful, our machines are going to continue to surprise us. You know, that's one thing about computational creativity. We want to build machines that surprise us. And we're definitely seeing that. Right now we have ChatGPT surprising the whole world. Same with Dali and stability. And, you know, these, these computers are going to keep getting more and more powerful in different ways. And it's just like with any innovation, it's up to us to apply that. I don't think it's ever about hiding from it or making it disappear. I think that's naive. but. It is up to us to find responsible ways of having them live in this world with us. With that responsible ways, if you've played around every, for our audience, as soon as you play around with, with chat, TBT, I'm sure that you're going to start thinking, oh, this could take so-and-so's job I know, or, or it's going to impact this area. What are your thoughts out there for people that, are, that have those concerns? Where do you think it's going to impact Who do you think is going to impact the most, the soonest? All right. So one of the areas that's been clearly identified by by various companies as a really fruitful, financially viable area to to leverage all of these big models is marketing. I mean, if you look at ChatGPT, it is so easy to write blog posts with it. It's so easy to create social content, so easy to just come up with taglines. It gives you it just gives you really good ideas. It works really, really well for that use case. So we're definitely going to see a certain kind of change in how these industries work. There's already a lot of large companies who are starting to leverage this technology in their marketing teams, improving productivity. So definitely one of the earliest verticals to be impacted. But there was some of the, I mean, how, I guess I'm curious, how come marketing and that haven't used these in years past? Weren't there other companies out there just they didn't know? Not so much because marketing does require a very broad understanding of natural language and some, some sense of what many different concepts mean. And in that sense, what OpenAI created with its GPT models is particularly well, well geared for this application because you don't necessarily need to write something that like a famous book, you know, like a super, super innovative way to string words together. But you do need to be, you do need to be kind of sharp and concise and really know how to manipulate language to write good marketing copy. And you need this broad understanding of the world. And somehow GPT, in particular chat GPT, just combines these traits that are necessary for marketing in such a good way. It doesn't mean that it can do it autonomously. It can't, but it can really help a marketer speed up their process. How are you using chat GPT right now? 
Oh, I love ChatGPT. I've been playing with it so much. <laughs> it's so much fun. I've been playing with like different writing styles. Like I wrote something. I'm like, well, how would this sound if like a famous British writer wrote it? And then it changes tone. So it really shows me also how much tone impacts how we, how much we appreciate a piece of writing or even how sophisticated it sounds. So I've been playing around a lot with that. Uh, things like sort of editing material. It's just so, so good at it. Or like, what's another way of phrasing those two lines? Like, how else can I say this? Uh, so I've been playing around with it quite a bit. Are you worried? I mean, you're a professor in university. Are you worried of any of your students using ChatGPT to just send you code in that and take credit? Good question. Not in particular, personally. But I think that there are some really big questions to answer here for education. And how can education embrace this technology and help, you know, children learn about how to use these systems? Because they're going to be using these systems for their jobs and yet still maintain some core education, educational aspects. So the best analogy is perhaps the calculator. You know, when the calculator came out, some people worried that's the end of math. It's kind of ridiculous now. It's just when you're teaching kids to add, divide and multiply and doing other basic things, you tell them don't use a calculator and you have them do it in class some of the time. So with writing, we might have to do more, you know, in-class writing to make sure the students are writing themselves. But we also teach students how to use calculators. We need to teach students how to use ChatGPT. And, you know, everything comes with pluses and minuses. I'm not here to claim that this is some kind of utopic tuition, but it is very powerful technology and it's pretty amazing to create with it. So, you know, I've learned that whatever students are doing to quote unquote cheat, we need to integrate that into the curriculum. We need to take it seriously. That's interesting. I, I remember growing up, the, you know, the teacher would always say, you know, you have to learn how to do this on your own. You, you're not going to walk around with a calculator in your pocket. <laughs> Fail on that teacher. You know how long it took them to like accept laptops? Right now, my son needs a laptop to go to high school. Oh, not an iPad? A laptop now. Yeah, it's really evolved. And for so long, it was like, how dare you even bring up computers? We need to handwrite everything. Things change and they're changing faster. Where are you seeing the most change in this, in this industry or in this field? Well, I think what I find most interesting at the very least is, is around the creative applications. The way it's going to impact how we write lyrics and music and art and poetry and dance choreography and pottery and designing, I don't know, pretty objects to decorate anything from our streets to our homes. Uh, fashion design, interior design, anything that's about genuine creativity, you know, creativity in a deep sense. We, we're so used to thinking of machines are just these boring robots. Why don't they clean my kitchen and, I don't know, organize my calendar or do the stuff I don't want to do? That's a very limited way of understanding what technology is. You can actually build machines that would make humans profoundly more creative. In a real way, like people come out from using our technology, Lyric Studio, Melody Studio, being better songwriters on pen and paper, right? So it's generative AI is about so much more than efficiency and speed. It's about really elevating our humanity, making us more creative beings. I want to see more of that. I'm going to try my best to push this field as much as possible in a way that elevates what's most human about us. So that's that's what I'm hoping. I don't know if that's my prediction, but that's what I want to see. And then Maya, you've mentioned your company a little bit, but tell our audience, tell us what you're working on. Tell us about the company, a little bit of the history, 
how we can all become songwriters. All right. I'm CEO of Wave AI. It is uh, really the work of my life creating this company. It came out of my own struggles with songwriting, along with my education and love of machine learning. So what we do is uh, we build tools that make it easy for people to engage in songwriting. About half of our users never really wrote a song before. And a lot of people find this really intimidating. It's like, how am I supposed to write a song? That's crazy. But we did a study which showed that not only can people write songs with our system, people who never thought that they could, but they actually start, start writing their own ideas within the first few minutes of using our system. On top of it, it's a really smooth experience when you walk into Lyric Studio and you start writing right away. The AI is there to help you and you start writing right away, but you're also in the driver's seat. So as you start having more and more of your own ideas, you start putting in your own ideas in there and it never, ever hinders you. And that's very different from a lot of the stuff we're seeing out there right now. Like, I love the Lee and stability. I just love those models. But I have to sit there and figure out how do I make this AI understand me? How do I talk to it? How do I do this prompt engineering? Because our systems, the AI adapts to you. It looks at what you're writing about. It adapts to your writing style. It's all about you. And then you also take full ownership of everything. We never take royalties. You know, we never sort of, we never interfere with your creative process in the creation or in the actual product that you make. It's entirely 100% yours. And also our systems cannot be used to imitate anybody. I think that that's something I'd really like to see more companies adopt this sort of attitude. What's the range of kind of songs in that? I mean, how, how big of a range is it just our music will create song for you, but it has to be in this genre or how, how, how open is it? It's incredibly flexible. We list a whole bunch of genres. A lot of our users are rappers. We have people writing spiritual songs. We have people writing pop. Uh, Curtis King had a number one hit on the iTunes hip hop charts with an album that he made using Lyric Studio back in August. So it's 15% of our users are professional artists. So if you hire a ghostwriter, there's a reasonable chance that they're using Lyric Studio in the background or Melody Studio, which is launching really soon. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole spectrum. A lot of our users are bedroom producers, sort of aspiring artists, people who want to make it as musicians. And a lot of our users are people who just hope to one day be able to write a song and suddenly they can. It's really the stories of our users and how our products impact our lives that makes us so meaningful. Okay. And what are we going to see from you and your company in 2023, 2024? Other than you mentioned the release of one new product, but tell us a little bit about Give us some highlights. So Melody Studio is going to launch next week. So I think by the time that we release this podcast, Melody Studio is already going to be live. <laughs> so we can say Lyric Studio and Melody Studio are live. We have a lot of exciting things coming. So one thing that we've been working on is expanding our free offering. So right now, if you go into Lyric Studio, there's a lot of stuff you get for free. So you can collaborate with your friends for free, organize your songs, access a rhyming and thesaurus, rhyming dictionary and thesaurus. So that's another thing that's in the works, expanding the free offering so that ultimately it satisfies our, mi our mission of making songwriting more accessible. So we're, we're building a large community. This is really, really exciting. Uh, everything about this company uh, has been a dream come true. And Maya, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Well, we have our website, so there is lyricstudio.net and melodystudio.net. That's the best way for people to play with our AIs. They have a free trial of the AI itself. 
You can just go in there, no credit card required, just play around, get a sense for what it's all about. And you can always check me out on LinkedIn. That's, I think, where I have the most up-to-date information. All right, we'll have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, well, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Connect with me on my LinkedIn or go to us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. We have our archive of podcasts there. And with that, Maya, I really got to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.